Welcome to Story Story Night, the city of Boise's cultural ambassador, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, our three featured storytellers are intermixed with a community story slam. Today's featured stories are from Amanda Peacher, Aidan Brazonic, and Maureen Lavelle. This season, our themes are based on the buttons of an old tape recorder. In this episode, we are hitting rewind. Now we need a hero. It's story time. Swinging with Ellie Shaw. It's almost like being in love. Welcome to Story Story Nights Rewind. Yes, let's do that again. Rewind. Good. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you again to Swinging with Ellie Shaw. Now, uh, we often try to think of a connection between our musician and our theme. And Ellie, you play mostly or perform music from the 30s and 40s. So your music has rewound us, gosh, almost 100 years, 80, 90 years. Um, What drew you, is there something that drew you to this specific period of music? Honestly, uh, 24-hour Christmas stations when I was a little girl. I loved Sinatra. I loved Mel Torme, Nat King Cole. That was, those were the voices that spoke to me. So. All right. Uh, wow. So it's a good thing you were listening to music and not just watching the Hallmark Channel, I guess. Because <laughs> then we'd have a whole different kind of style going on. 24-hour music stations. Wow, that was cool. Well, thank you for being with us tonight and taking us back in time. That's super fun. And of course, I also want to recognize our interpreters tonight. We have Lavona Andrew here. And Sierra McIver will be coming up and alternating to give each other some rest with their hands, yes. Yes, and some of you know applause for the deaf and hearing impaired, looks like that. And if there is a person in the audience who is deaf or hearing impaired, we also invite you to be a story slammer. You can put your name in at the story slammer booth and we have an extra mic for our interpreters so that they can voice your story if you are interested in doing that and more about that structure of the show. Uh, So to start things off, let's rewind back to September of this year when the mayor of the city of Boise announced that Story Story Night was going to be the cultural ambassador for the city of Boise for the next two years, which is super exciting. The mayor chose Story Story because she recognized the importance of storytelling in community and also to highlight the diversity and that everyone belongs. It's a city for everyone and that is part of the mission of us being a cultural ambassador is to make sure that we serve that function as well. Now the whole, uh, speaking of rewinding, uh, this all started with this tape recorder. Uh, Yes, it brings joy to everyone. Uh, This is the exact tape recorder that I had growing up as a kid. And people have often asked, uh, how do you come up with the themes for the Story Story Night shows? And I'd like to give you something more cerebral. Uh, Well, maybe this is cerebral. I don't know. You be the judge. Uh, I thought, hmm, play. Let's, Let's work with that word. Play is one of the buttons on a tape recorder. Hey, how many buttons are on a tape recorder? We have six shows in our flagship season. 
Let's look that up on Google. Hey, look, that's my old tape recorder. It has six buttons. <laughs> so we have record, rewind, play, fast forward, stop, eject. We did record last month. It was really fun. We uh, set a new world record. Uh, by the way, the update is that uh, our featured storyteller, Dave Record Breaking Rush, uh, did tie the world record in the Guinness Book of those things. I'm not sure that's the actual title. Uh, for breaking the most pencils in one minute. So we had that, we, we had that set up and he raced around the table. He was panting and sweating and he had a big red rash on his arm from breaking these pencils. Uh, but I wrote to him and said, hey, well, what's the official word? And he said, yeah, we tied it at 110 pencils, I think it was, in one minute. Uh, one of the things that I did with this tape recorder is uh, made little fake radio shows and advertisements. And also, it was a soundtrack for puppet shows that I did as a kid. Uh, so I've, I've recorded a, a little commercial here tonight. And um, you might also notice that we have another. Uh, they're breeding. And <laughs> now there's another one with the even bigger uh, featured, bigger magnetic tape. And this is another plan we have for the show tonight that may or may not fail. So I don't know if I want to tell you too much about it, because uh, I might just casually start singing the closing song and be like, remember that tape recorder? No, it was, it was just for set. All right, let's see how we do so far. Mm -hmm. We are proud to sponsor the art of storytelling in our great community. Okay, that doesn't seem like the whole message. I think I have to rewind. <laughs> Purveyors of all things onion, we are proud to sponsor the art of storytelling in our great community. Hmm, still mysterious. Who is a purveyor of all things onion, he asked. Rewind some more. Flavors Incorporated. Oh. Purveyor of all things onion. We are proud to sponsor the art of storytelling in our great community. Thank you to Flavors Incorporated. <laughs> hey. That actually worked way better than I was expecting. Flavors Incorporated. Uh, and the cool thing about Flavors Incorporated is not only are they sponsoring tonight's show, but several of the members of that company are also story subscribers and have been for at least a season, I think. Uh, and story subscribers are people who offer a monthly support to Story Story Night and are able to claim tickets to every show throughout the year. Uh, and so we want to thank our story subscribers too. How many people here tonight are story subscribers? We just have a show of hands. Look at them all. I love that. Thank you for that. And that's been a great, a great base for us. And then, of course, we also have a season sponsor tonight. They are sponsoring the entire flagship and are back with us this season. They uh, first sponsored the season last year, and that is the Shandro Group. So thank you to the Shandro Group. All right. Uh, how many people is this your first time to Story Story Night? Wow, you sat right in the front, aren't you brave souls? <laughs> Very good. Because you know what I do is I pick people from the front to come up here and tell their stories. That's how the show works. 
Um, I usually start in the second row at the second seat, so get ready. <laughs> Be thinking. No, that's not how the show works. How the show works is we have three featured storytellers uh, that uh, we've been working together a little bit. Uh, the holidays, kind of, they've been a little more on their own, so uh, the storytellers get a lot of credit tonight. Uh, and that's intermixed with the community story slam. So if you want to have your name drawn randomly during the show to come up here and share a five-minute story from your neck of the woods, go over to the slammer booth over there and see Susan or Ben, and you just write your name on a little ticket, and you will get the chance to come up and share a five-minute story on the theme, Rewind. Now, oh, we have a lot of people standing. Are there no, we have some open seats here that I think you can sit in if you like. Uh, if you don't want to stand against the wall, there's six seats in the second row right here. There, and we also have chairs that uh, are coming to you directly. <laughs> All right, there we go. It looks like they're voting for chairs. You don't want to be a storyteller that I call on right away in the second row? Okay. Uh, so the theme rewind is probably one of the most open-ended themes that we have had. I mean, we've had some crazy themes. One year, our themes were all elements from the periodic table. Uh, one year, our themes were just punctuation marks. Um, so we had a whole show about exclamation point and another show about semicolon. Uh, one of our most popular shows was Aluminum. I still don't know why. Uh, so tonight, it's Rewind, which really any story from the past kind of fits the theme. But one of the ways we're trying to challenge in terms of thinking about this theme is, is there something in your life that you went back and did over? Or uh, you sensed that things were going wrong and you stopped and were like, let's start this again. I'm going to take a new direction. So thinking of do-overs or, you know, it is fine to just share a story from the past. That's okay, too. Uh, but that's the kind of thing we're thinking of with this theme, Rewind. So now, I'm going to jump right to it and bring up your featured storytellers for the evening in reverse order. Uh, I would like to say that's because we're rewinding, so I'm going to start at the end and go backwards, but it is the way I always do it at every show. So <laughs> we'll just pretend it's extra special for rewind. Uh, our, so in reverse order, and they'll be coming up to the stage and sitting in our beautiful little bean chairs. Uh, a woman who is rewinding Boise, please welcome Maureen Lavelle. And a man who is, well, I just, I was gonna say a man who is always kind and rewinds, which relates to his theme quite a bit, but I just learned also he's gone, kind of rewound an extra amount recently because the water main in his house broke. Uh, this last week and they have no bathroom functioning in their home. Uh, I don't know if they're using an outhouse or a bucket or what, but it seems like they're rewinding. Please welcome Aiden Brazonic. Oh, a cat litter box. Oh, very good. All right. I think you need to keep rewinding. Yeah. And first up to the mic, a person I haven't even been able to say hello to yet tonight. Uh, and not a stranger to Story Story Night, has a lot of history with Story Story. Um, and she is a person who knows that you cannot rewind on live radio. Please welcome to the mic, Amanda Peacher.
a very festively appropriate garment. Yes. Yeah, just right now. You don't even get to sit down. Okay. They left you the green chair, though, so you're green on green. Yeah. Thanks, Jody. I called up my parents to do a quick but regular, I love you, and I'm okay, and I'm still out here reporting this wild story. And my mom says, I saw you on PBS NewsHour last night. You look tired. <laughs> it was one week into the armed occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Eastern Oregon in 2016. I was the Central Oregon reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting. This was my backyard, essentially, my, my beat. And I was immediately on the story. And I was tired. <laughs> Before this, the Malheur Refuge, the most action it typically saw was during breeding season of the Sandhill Cranes. <laughs> it was a quiet place, and I knew it well. And it was an immediately a national event, a national media event, which meant that this public radio reporter, who was a regional and local reporter in the past, um, was suddenly in a once-in-a-career kind of spotlight. But let me rewind a bit and go back. You see, the Malheur National, Malheur National Refuge was taken over by a then little-known figure named Ammon Bundy. He and a group of, yes, he and a small group of ranchers and protesters about a week before had snuck into the refuge headquarters building, um, parked their big trucks in front of the entrance, and were demanding that these local, these pu public lands would be turned over to local control. At first, the occupation was just a, a handful of guys. Um, you know, they draped an American flag over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge sign. They had pocket constitutions. They were talking nonstop about this mission of turning over the lands to local control. They were steadfast. But nothing like this had ever happened quite in Eastern Oregon. It's a remote location. The closest airport is Boise. Um, and so for people like me, a local reporter who knew the area well, um, we kind of got to own the story for the first few days. Um, the likes of MSNBC and CNN eventually flocked in, but there were blizzards on both the East and West Coasts. So for the first couple of days of this national media event, I was on NPR nonstop on MSNBC, on the BBC. My, the New York Times embedded one of my tweets in one of their stories, and immediately I had 10,000 followers overnight. So I was running. And I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy some of the adrenaline of the breaking news, but this was a very bizarre story. So reporting on the Malheur occupation goes something like this day to day. I would wake up in Burns, which was two hours away from where I lived um, in Bend at the time. Uh, it was often before dawn. Um, I would send my husband a text, I love you, how is our kitten? Um, <laughs> and then I would drive in sub-zero temperatures to the refuge, um, tromp around in the snow with my microphone, interviewing the occupiers, interviewing Ammon Bundy, who were vague and often self-assured. I would talk to the leaders of uh, the, the, um, the area, Malheur, or sorry, Harney County and, and Burns, who were frustrated and often terrified at uh, these strangers who were suddenly in their community. 
And I would talk to members of the Burns Paiute tribe who were also frustrated and, you know, questioned what would happen if people from their community had decided to take over public lands and turn them over to their rightful owners. So it was nonstop reporting and as the story went on, um, the, the things I had to do day to day kind of changed. So one day they decided to take down a fence between public and private lands. Um, it turns out the rancher who owned the private lands did not much appreciate that. Another day, uh, some of the occupiers bulldozed a road through what is actually a protected archeological site, a new road. Another day, um, another day, one guy showed up with one of those, one of these like huge African horns, like an antelope horn, and would just blow it into the cold winter air as some sort of signal. The figures that these, these, um, <laughs> this occupation attracted were complicated and interesting and um, dynamic, let's just say. I interviewed one guy um, who I think was from Utah. He would only ID as Captain Moroni. Um, <laughs> He was in black and white fatigues, kind of a young guy, and I asked him, if law enforcement decides to sweep in here, are you prepared to use your firearm? And he said, I didn't come here to shoot. I came here to die. And that was the level of intensity these people brought to this mission. And as Ammon Bundy and the other occupiers got more of a national voice on media, Sorry about that, I guess. Um, <laughs> more and more people flocked to the refuge to become part of this cause, from Tennessee, from Texas, from other parts of Oregon, from Idaho. Um, some people showed up with their kids, families, um, to be part of the occupation. Armed occupation, protest, families, doesn't necessarily go together in my mind, but in theirs, it did. And so, for the, the 41 days that the occupation lasted, I was running nonstop. Every day, a new story to tell. Every day, someone new to interview. There were protests, um, counter-protests from bird lovers and public lands lo lovers in Bend and Harney County. Um, and it was an ever-changing and dynamic event. Now, uh, every couple of days, I would get a chance to go home, maybe do a load of laundry. My husband, Thomas, um, is an immigrant. He's from Austria. We were newly married, and so we were kind of like fresh into this life together. He had just applied for his green card. We had um, an upcoming appointment, one of those sort of prove you're not fake married appointments with U US citizenship and immigration. So there was a lot happening in our fresh life together. We were trying to have a baby, a little hard to do when one of you is in Burns and the other in Bend. <laughs> so the occupation um, took a lot of space and time. And when I say Ammon Bundy occupied, um, and, and the other occupiers took over a physical space, they also occupied our collective attention and energy. And for, month, or for weeks, it seemed like this was not going to end. Now, I'm not going to say, um, again, I didn't, uh, that I, I didn't appreciate and enjoy the adrenaline rush of breaking news. I liked to be the one who owned the story. Um, but, and also, it was my duty to be there, um, to be the one who, uh, could provide context and analysis to ask the hard questions, to ask law enforcement, why aren't they moving in? Why is the electricity still on? To provide facts to counter some of the things that were happening and being said at the occupied refuge. But if you ask me now, would I have chosen perhaps another story to launch me into the national spotlight and be the defining moment of my career? 
probably say yes. So the occupation wears on, and at one point, it gets dark. Ammon Bundy and some of the other leaders take a convoy of vehicles up toward a community north of Harney County, and they are finally stopped by law enforcement. One of the occupiers reaches for his firearm and is shot and killed by an FBI agent. Ammon Bundy and the other occupiers are taken into custody. Now, you might think that that would have been the end of this story, this national event, but it absolutely was not. Um, at the occupied refuge, some of the people stayed and continued to protest, continue the, what they saw as a movement. Um, the scene in Harney County was chaos with protests and counter-protests happening. The story continued, and that meant I continued to stay to cover it. I would call up Thomas and say, I don't know when I'm going to be back. I don't know when they're going to leave. It's, it's still an ever-changing situation. I need to be here for it. And as the, um, as the occupation wore on, finally it became these four no-name holdouts who were just hunkered down in front of a campfire, refusing to leave with their firearms. And that meant I wasn't going anywhere either. Um, but my husband's green card appointment was coming up in Portland. One of those non-negotiable, sit in front of a federal agent and prove that your husband should get to stay in the country kind of thing. So it got closer and closer to the date in Portland, and the four holdouts are still there, um, not going anywhere. And finally, it's the day before I need to drive from Burns to Portland to be there, and um, it seems like they're close to leaving. They are in negotiations with law enforcement. There are some signals that they're maybe gonna, maybe gonna give up, and I wait and I wait. I'm outside. Um, by this point, law enforcement had surrounded uh, the the occupation perimeter or the refuge perimeter, and um, I'm outside the FBI boundary, um, just waiting for a word, and it doesn't happen. Dusk falls, and I start to think, am I going to not be here for the end of this story that has been so important to my career? I have to go. Thomas is texting me every so often like, hey, how are you doing, my love? <laughs> and I wait as long as I can. NPR asks me for a live update on morning edition, which is the middle of the night, west of the coast time. And I say, OK, I'll do that, and then I'm going to go to Portland. And I have about eight hours to get there for the appointment and six hours of driving to do. NPR keeps delaying the broadcast and delaying the broadcast. And I'm sitting up, uh, sitting in my car on the side of this isolated road, staring at the roadblock, thinking about this story and wondering, not only am I going to make it for my husband's important appointment, but am I going to, to miss out on the end? So finally, I do the two-minute live hit on NPR. Mary Louise Kelly is very sweet and befuddled at the whole story. Um, I jump in my work Subaru. I drive the two hours to Bend. I pick up Thomas, and he's like, great, glad to see you. We drive the four hours to Portland as fast as the icy roads will allow. And we get there for just enough time to have a coffee, and I sit down with Thomas, bleary-eyed, in front of the federal agent, but I am there. And she looks at Thomas and I, and she smiles, and she says, Amanda Peacher, I didn't expect you to show up today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, 
I first I think I did something wrong. Like, well, well, why? Why? And she's like, well, I've been covering your, your, uh, I've been following your coverage of the occupation. I heard you on NPR like two hours ago. I figured you would reschedule. <laughs> and I am like, what? That is an option? <laughs> Can I get a rewind here? <laughs> Because the very strict-seeming letter you get from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration does not have a checkbox saying, click here if you want to reschedule. <laughs> but apparently, that is a thing. Still, I am glad I showed up that day. I left Harney County. My husband did get his green card. He is here with me tonight. <laughs> and yes, the occupation ended. I wasn't there to see it. The holdouts gave up. They surrendered. One of them said, hallelujah. Instead, I chose to be occupied with my husband and our future. Thank you. Now, Amanda, did you wear green because your story featured the green card? Oh, now see? One of the reasons Amanda is very closely associated with Story Story Night is she's very dear friends with our current copywriter, former host, and founder of Story Story Night, Jessica Holmes. Where's Jessica? She's got to be here. There she is. Also, wearing, are you wearing green too? Oh, beautiful. So, uh, Jessica, when she was hosting, was very, very carefully curated what she wore. Uh, you might be looking at me now and being like, you, not so much. Um, but actually, I did kind of curate this for tonight, because I thought, rewind, what is the oldest shirt I have in my closet? <laughs> and as near as I can tell, this shirt is at least 1990, uh, you know, which is what, 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> And it's been in the closet so long that I think corduroy is now in style again, isn't it? In fact, I already got a compliment when I came in tonight saying, oh, I really like your shirt jacket. Which um, <laughs> I decided to wear it out tonight. I don't, I mean, out and out. Uh, and I don't know why this shirt is so big either because in 1989, I was rail thin. So I must have been swimming in this and now I'm quite comfortable, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, we, uh, do we have a slammer in our uh, cassette tape box to go on with our theme of magnetic media? I want you to know that each and every one of you I consider to be magnetic media tonight, okay? Because you're all beautiful people. Yes, thank you. Uh, all right, here we go. Oh my goodness, there's so many. I am getting dizzy. Uh, all right, I'm going to take this one which is uh, the vocal workout. Is there a vocal coach in your house? Yes. And it is, uh, aha, I know this name because it's a person who we featured at our late night series not too long ago. Please welcome back to Story Story Stage, Heather Rideout. Heather was in a show that uh, the power went out in the middle of the show, 
and we had to finish it uh, using flashlights, but she was the lucky one who went first. But just in case, for no particular reason, I'm also going to record your story on this old reel-to-reel tape deck for, for backup, okay? So this is your rewind story. You know you have five minutes. Yes. Now, this is not late night, so I you know. can't no, use that no. potty mouth no, that you no. used. <laughs> you were so... My last name is Rideau. Your last name is Rideau, not Rideout? Oh. I know, it's spelled right. I mean, I grew up in Idaho. I can't... <laughs> Look at what I'm wearing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I was standing along the side of a road in Pennsylvania, kind of south of Duncannon, with my thumb out, and I was wearing hot pink fluorescent shorts with a rainbow unicorn hat and a backpack on. In summer, sweating, hadn't had a shower in five days, and this is how I was trying to get a ride. Um, I was trying to get to the Wegmans, the grocery store. If you know it, it's an East Coast chain. It is amazing. And when you're hiking a total of 2,172 miles from Georgia to Maine, you really, really want a grocery store. You just dream about grocery stores. So here I am. I'm just thumb out trying to get into resupply because you can only carry about five days worth of food. And when you're burning 2,000 to 4,000 calories a, a day, you, you really need food. So here I am, and I wait for a little bit, not too long, and a guy pulls over, and he says, all right, get in, I'm picking you up, because if my daughter was trying to hitchhike, I, I, I really wouldn't be happy about it, and I'd want her to be safe, so please get in. Does your father know you're doing this? I'm like, yeah, actually he does, he does know, and I didn't mention that my father always insisted, totally fine if you're hitchhiking, but just keep that little you know, Swiss Army knife that I gave you in your pocket that would probably just give a splinter or something like that, like totally pointless, but I had it. And I was like, yes, I'm fine. My father totally supports me right now doing this. So there I am, riding with him, getting in, drops me off at the Wegmans. I'm so excited, I go inside and it's like, you know, the moment of joy, you've got the cookies, you've got the cakes and the ice creams and you just want to eat everything and you want to buy and shop and just walking around and thinking about where I'm going next on my hike, going north towards Maine. And I go out into the parking lot with my purchases, ready to pack up my bag, ready to call my friend who I'm going to stay with for the night who lives in the area. And I'm, I'm reaching for my phone and I can't find my phone. I will point out, this was 2016, and I still owned a flip phone, so it was about this big. And I'm like, I can't find it. What am I going to do? I, I can't find my phone. So I, I took a moment, and I was in that real positive high state you get when you're walking outside every day, lots of vitamin D, lots of sunshine. I'm like, this is fine. I'm going to manifest this phone. I'm going to find this phone. So I go back into the joys of Wegman and you know, get a little distracted looking at all the food, but I'm looking for my phone, I'm talking to people, no, I'm still smiling, I'm in that rainbow unicorn hat and pink fluorescent shorts that I would wear. Go outside, and I'm looking in the parking lot, and a man approaches me with his two young boys and says, are you, are you okay? Can I help you? I'm like, I can't find my phone. He's like, oh, well, what kind of phone? I'm like, it's a flip phone. He's like, oh, all right, well, let's keep looking. So 
so he's helping me and I'm like, I've got to just retrace my steps here. I've got to rewind. I've got to think where was I, where was I with this phone? I knew that I had it when I got off the trail at the intersection because along with that little knife that I'd keep alongside me in the car, I kept my phone just in case. So he said, well, let's, let's retrace. Let's, let's go back. Do you know where you got in this man's vehicle? what if it's in this man's vehicle and who is he and where is my phone? So I said, yeah, I think I remember where I got in his car. He said, well, let's get in the car. Let's go there. Let's go find this spot close to the Appalachian Trail. I'm like, okay. So I get in the car, you know, big old truck and he's got his kids and they were getting ready to go to the Tasty Freeze before they met me. I'm like, I will buy you all the Tasty Freeze and me too, like if we can just find my phone. So... I'm like, I think this is the spot. And I get out along the side of the road, still sunshiny, still pretty darn positive, I'm gonna find my phone. And he said, did did you leave your ringer on? I said, yes, I did. So I give him my number, he calls, and there I hear it. I hear my phone along the side of the road in in the little brush of Pennsylvania, and I run to it. And I find it, I'm just, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Life is just great. Um, so I said, can I take you to that Tasty Freeze? You know, can I treat your whole family, every, your town, like everybody? And he's like, no, you know, we're going in the other direction. I'll drive you back to the Wegmans. Maybe he was ready to be done with me because I hadn't showered in five days. I don't really know. But he brought me back to that parking lot and I thanked him profusely. And then I said, I'm just going to, rewind again back into the Wegmans and I'm going to celebrate with a pint of ice cream. That was it. Thank you. And Heather, please remember to visit the booth to sign our release form so that years from now you can rewind back to that story and we can, depending you know, if you're running for Congress or something or president, People, you'll, your opposition will embarrass you with that story about losing your flip phone and hitchhiking with a unicorn hat on. All right, let's bring up our next featured storyteller straight from the kitty litter. It's Aiden Brazonic. Cinema's always been a part of my life. I grew up in a family that values movies over a lot of other things. I think most weekdays would be spent watching noir films, uh, Turner Classic movies, and that I think is something that I didn't have a lot in common with a lot of my friends. Uh, My dad was, and my stepmom were the, the noir junkies. My mom was the weird 80s horror kid. So bouncing back and forth between those things, that, I mean, that was my childhood. Uh, when my dad remarried, they got remarried at the Flicks in Boise. <laughs> Something I think that if that got out, you, then there'd be a pretty good side revenue. But uh, no, I've always been around film. Uh, in high school, I took Japanese class for three years and I assumed I was gonna be going to Japan with my friends, but we happened to win a national Emmy in high school, 
And instead of going to Japan, I ended up working with Larry Gebert at KTVB at 4 a.m. for my entire summer. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> uh, what I got from that experience, what cinema and what working in news did for me as an Idaho kid, was I got to explore this place. For whatever reason, the higher-ups at KTVB thought it would be a good idea to give a 17-year-old his own car, his own gas card, and travel around the entire state shooting stories. Uh, and I think it worked out pretty well. But for the most part, yeah, no, it was, it was something that I don't think happens to too many kids. And during that experience, I got to see a lot of Idaho. I got to see a lot of the people that make up this great place and all sides of the spectrum. Just to, to see that there's so many amazing, interesting stories that make this place the great state that it is. Moving forward, once I realized I wanted to be a filmmaker, it, it, it quickly became very obvious that I couldn't do it here. I had to leave, and so I went to Chicago. And there, I learned all the things you need to learn if you're going to be making movies, which is you know how to write a script, how to work with actors and, and other crew members, and, and, and to create a narrative that not only feels honest and real to you, but also reaches out to you know, the audience and, and can impact them in a way. So in doing that, uh, I was away from Idaho for a long time with every intention of always coming back home, but I felt I needed to have the skill sets required to come back to the place that I wanted to tell stories about. So I, I was gone for about 14 years from Chicago to Austin, Texas, and then eventually Los Angeles. And in that time, I, I, I did a lot of really fun projects, but I also realized that my heart was always tied to this place, telling Idaho narratives, stories that I thought were important, but never got the attention they deserved, because we were always haunted by that one indie film, you may have heard of it, <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite. And when you're from Idaho and you go to another city, you're, you're the, <laughs> the, uh, the stereotypes uh, sometimes present themselves that everyone in Idaho is a character in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. It's a great movie, but it still haunts me. Uh, <laughs> and so living with that kind of baggage that Napoleon unwillingly gave to me. Uh, I, I, I wanted to show the other side of what this state was. I mean, that movie is fantastic, and it, it is a spectrum of what Idaho is, but it's not the entire spectrum. Uh, so, in uh, 2019, I came back home ready to do my version of what I think Idaho films were going to be, like to tell the story of what Idaho was for me growing up here being a fan of noir and westerns and, and all the stuff that was on Turner Classic Movies. And then the actor's strike happened. And every week we couldn't make our movie. So, in waiting for that, 
I had a mentor and he said, well, you wanted to make a movie here, but that wasn't your whole goal. What was the actual identity that like you want, you're trying to build in Idaho? What was the thing that you wanted to do? And I said, well, it's, it's build a film industry, but not just an LA film industry, not just a, a New York in industry. How do we tell Idaho narratives and stories that matter to people that live here? And he said, well, you don't need to do a movie to do that. Uh, you're smart. I said, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, so we had the idea to make the Idaho Film Society. And this is a, a society like a lot of other places like Austin, Texas, where it's like it's, it's, it's rooted in community and rooted in stories that are important to the people that live in, the, uh, in, in that city. And that's what we wanted to do here. And somehow in the matter of six months, we assembled a 14-person board of directors, over 40 volunteers, and we pulled this institution together. And you may have not heard of it yet because it's not really a thing. It's six months old. But the goal is to build something that's a real staple for Idahoans and for film lovers. And in that process, it's great to have a, non, to have a, a nonprofit. Uh, we are a 501c3. We're about giving back to the community. But being a nonprofit isn't enough. You need, if you're in film, you have to have an identity, a location. And it just so happened that the bus station, the Greyhound station on 12th and Bannock, was available. And one of our board members, Eric Gilbert, you may have heard of a little thing that he's helped create called Tree Fort. Uh, I talked to him after the 2023 Tree Fort, and he said, you know, um, we did our thing here, and I was like, yeah, it was really cool, man. The, like, the bands and the fact that you had a dance uh, set up, and there was also just like drinks, and there's so many different things happening in one building. What are you going to do with it? And he said, well, we're, we've got El Cora now. We don't, we're not doing it. But you should talk to Andrea, the owner of the building, because she's all about building community. And so I did. I messaged her and was completely blown away by the fact that she just said, sure. I was like, what are you talking about? Why, what are you, why are you saying that? And she's like, well, this is a part of Boise that hasn't really been developed yet. You seem like you care enough about it that you want to make it happen. Uh, so why not? And so over a couple of very easy, two suspiciously easy meetings, <laughs> she said, why don't you just take this for the next three and a half years and see what you can do? So we signed a contract. and. Now we have a physical brick and mortar home. And that building is 10,000 square feet. So it's a lot of space. And our plan has been from the beginning to consolidate all the things that Idaho is lacking in film production that all these other states around us have that we could very easily build if we had the right, uh, the, the, the right moment. And that's what we have. So, in a matter of six months, we've assembled an entire group of people that care about film, that want to see film thrive, honor the, like, the history and traditions of film, and in our 10,000 square foot space, we are building a six days a week movie theater doing second run films with 10 film curators, a sound stage for film production, uh, a, a coffee shop for creatives to hang out and be around other artists and be inspired and have the motivation and passion to make films 
and not have the kind of gatekeeping that happens in bigger cities like Los Angeles or New York. Make a space where artists can meet and talk and feel like they're part of something that's bigger than them and then be inspired and then go out into the world and create something new. So this is coming together far too quickly. It's very suspicious. <laughs> and, and the entire, the, the, the fact that I, I wanted to tell Idaho stories and there, there was a kind of, I think, a, a, a need for this uh, within the community and all these kind of barriers that came up that we couldn't have done this unless the actors and writer strike happened. It made us slow down, it made us rethink, and I still get to make my movie next year, thankfully. But we now have a space that's gonna be a, a, a great community hub, empowering filmmakers and film lovers to be in one space and, and fill out what Treeford has done for Idaho to do that on the film side. So more than anything, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to, say my, the stars have aligned for this, but I'm, I'm just thankful that Idaho cares about film and cares about movies. Our biggest fundraiser that we just did was the 40th anniversary of A Christmas Story at The Egyptian, where we fixed the film projectors, and that's the first time that film has been shown in The Egyptian in over a decade. So it's pretty amazing. Anyways. We're so thankful that Idaho has responded to this. I think film and the bus station and reusing and repurposing these places that were considered maybe obsolete or not of value and, and, and then seeing the enthusiasm that has come back with them has just reaffirmed everything that we're trying to do, that there is a place for physical film and movies in Idaho. You don't need to forget the past. You can champion it. You can tell stories that matter and the future's never looked brighter for film in Idaho. Thank you. Hmm, a bus depot. Isn't that where the creatives have always hung out? That's what I hear them called. Look at those creatives over there. Uh, my family and I were at the showing of a Christmas story at the Egyptian, and we sat in the balcony, which I think was a particularly good place to be for seeing it on film again, because I was reminded, and I'd almost forgotten, what the sound of a projector, that when you're up in that balcony, you can hear the projector, and that there's a point in the film where it does like a jump when it switches reels, and then you hear the other spool rewinding, and it just brought me back. Uh, so I was in Boise as a kid, too, and there used to be a big cinema on Fairview Avenue that had a really big screen, and you could hear that sound of the projector. It was super fun, and that's kind of the weird little dots that would sometimes happen, or the, when the sound would change speed a little bit. And I was like, yeah, that's how it used to be to watch a film. All right, well, Let's rewind back to December 15th. That was the enrollment deadline for insurance for individuals and families. <laughs> but did you know employer insurance can be set up for open enrollment at any time, even for small businesses? The Chandro Group is here to help with that and knows that when employees look back at what is important to them, at work benefits are on the top of the list. 
This time next year, the Chandra Group wants you to be able to rewind and see how much they've helped you grow your business. And now, after that message from our sponsor, I'm asking Hannah May to come up, and she has a little message about being a sponsor. So please welcome Hannah May. I actually have a game for you guys to help us brainstorm during intermission. Um, and a couple messages from our current sponsors um, from this season. So behind the scenes, fun fact, um, as most of you guys noticed, Story Story Night loves themes. We do a lot to theme out the entire event. Um, and we do the same thing with our sponsors and our show sponsors. Um, so um, the game for you guys to play is we have two shows this season that are still in need of sponsorship. Our March show is eject and our April show is stop. So the game is think of a business or a business type and a tagline for the business that can fit the theme. <laughs> so some of the examples, um, Jody did a really great pitch for Shondro Group with Rewind. Um, we also, I spoke with Flavors today. Flavors had a tagline for their um, business Flavors Inc, purveyor of onions, where each bite is a rewind to farm fresh delight. <laughs> um, fast forward in February is Apple Plumbing and Bath. I took the liberty to write one for them. Fast forward your bathroom remodeling dreams with Apple uh, Plumbing and Bath. Um, I asked a few people for some examples for our future one, eject in March and stop for April, and that's where I need your guys' help for help us find a new sponsor. But some examples, um, if there's any ski shops, eject your boots, not your bones. <laughs> um, Stop in April, um, an idea was, um, if anybody knows of pest control companies, stop the infestation. Um, there is, if there's any alcohol or addiction recovery, stop your vice, live your life. Um, so if you guys have any ideas or you know any companies or themes of companies, I will be at the Slammer booth and you guys can stop by and let me know your business ideas and taglines. Thanks guys. Well, I am feeling particularly connected to the theme Rewind this evening because, as some of you know, tonight is my birthday. <laughs> so, <clears throat> about the time that the doors opened here tonight, adjusting for time zone, is when I entered the world. And I was born at Vandenberg Air Force Base, so nobody, oh, fans of Vandenberg, great. Uh, so no one was allowed to be in the delivery room, not like today with your you know, whole family there to witness this miracle, no. It was just my mom and a very gruff doctor and some forceps. Uh, that's, that's what we did back then. We just pulled the child out. Now, I'm not sure that my mom counts as uh, an audience necessarily. Oh, by the way, she's here tonight. Where is my mom? There she is. 
Wow, wow, they turned the lights up. Um, I'm not sure she counts as an audience, but that's my segue to also that this is the release of a book I just published called Audience of One Stories of Stage, Screen, and Solitude. And thank you. And when it launched earlier this month, uh, it was tracking apparently on the Amazon stats as the number one new release in puppets and puppetry. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you, I'm very proud. Uh, also number one in, in Broadway and musicals, which is interesting. Uh, it is the ultimate rewind because technically it is a memoir. Uh, not number one in that category. Uh, there's a woman named Babs who also released <laughs> some kind of book. Apparently more people were interested in her book, but that's all right, that's okay. Uh, you know, just timing, I guess. Uh, so, but I, with, with Rewind and it being my birthday, I was thinking back to some birthdays and uh, my 50th birthday was during the pandemic. And so we had to get very creative because we were concerned as many people were. And what my family came up with is that we would drive up into the foothills uh, where there are no people, and we parked our cars with the trunks facing in, in like a circle, like a wagon, uh, pull up your wagons kind of thing. Uh, and we opened up our, our tailgates, and we each sat in our own party uh, on our tailgates, and there was a table of food way in the distance. And each person from their car could go over and get some food and then bring it back and we all sat watching each other as we ate. <laughs> so that was nice. Um, my 40th birthday, uh, this was a time that I didn't live in Idaho. I was living in New York, um, but I would come here for, for Christmas every year. And as my birthday is three days after Christmas, we would celebrate my birthday here too. And my family rented a little cabin up in Tamarack. And so we went up there, and uh, it snowed a lot that year. We were very snowed in, and of course we did have to go skiing. Um, I did mention, oh also, I was gonna say in the book, the first chapter, the whole concept of Audience of One was a trip that I took to London in college, and uh, it was a theater and music studies, and I went to this show at a pub theater and quickly discovered that I was going to be the only person in the audience. And then discovered that what I was there to see was a one-man ballet of Wuthering Heights. <laughs> so that set up the whole concept for the book. And what's kind of fun is that tonight, uh, and in the copyright page, there's mention of people's names being changed for privacy. And so this person's name was changed, so I'll leave it up to him whether he lets you know his real name or not. But my friend who was with me in college in London is here, Aaron. Oh. <laughs> Erroneous. Uh, yeah. And it's also interesting here that he's here tonight because in Tamarack, of course, we had to go skiing. But, but the very first time I'd been skiing was with Aaron when he'd come uh, 20 years earlier to visit. And he is a skier, and so he took me, the Boise boy, up to Bogus to ski, which I had never done before. Um, our family always cross-country skied, uh, so I didn't really know anything about downhill skiing. So he was the expert. He took me up the hill. We went on the chairlift. We get off, and I'm like on the trail, and I'm like, oh, 
I know this. This is just like cross-country skiing. And he's like, no, 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 that, this is the cat trail. Uh, that's the trail. And I turned and looked down this sheer cliff that went straight down the hill. And I was like, there is no way. Whoop, there he went. And I'm like, how can anyone go down this? It's straight down. And then I look down the hill and I see a bunch of second graders. And they're making their way down the hill. I'm like, oh, come on, I can do this. Plus, you know, now I'm like 20, so I'm invincible. Uh, so I pointed my skis down the hill and was like, whoop, wow, I got going fast. And I was like, I'm doing it. I am so good at this. Uh, I did not look graceful. My poles were flailing around. My skis were coming up and down. And like, you know, I was flying down the hill. But I was standing and I was, I was gonna beat Aaron down that hill, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I was flying down that hill and then I don't know where it came from, but this like snowbank thing, I just went into the snow and skipped around a little bit, bounced a little bit and then just kind of laid there like, Whoa. and I don't know what it is about the cold, but you can just hear better. And so I had passed those second graders, <laughs> fortunately didn't kill any of them. Uh, but I passed those second graders and I could very clearly hear from the instructor, see kids, now that's why you're taking lessons. <laughs> so back at Tamarack, uh, we're snowed in up there and uh, our family does pretty crazy birthdays. Uh, this birthday was themed after the Roald Dahl book and then later the adapted film, Fantastic Mr. Fox. So we did all sorts of activities, including portraits, and, and we became robber barons with ski masks and all sorts of things. And, and we also played Whack Bat, which uh, if you, the rules for Whack Bat are extremely bizarre and complicated, but we did it. We had our stick runners and um, the umpire, and what you do is you light a, a pine cone, and then the stick runners have to run back and forth until the umpire Kyle's hot box. Uh, so we did a lot of running around. We didn't know what we were running around for, but also it didn't, we didn't have to run very long because the, we had a lot of trouble keeping the, the pine cone lit. So it, it ended very shortly. But uh, I did, we were in Tamarack, so I did have to ski. And, but you know, this time I was like, I don't really know how to ski. I learned from that second grade instructor. Uh, so I'm gonna be on, just on the bunny hill. But I got kind of bored on the bunny hill. Uh, it was fun, but I said to my sister, like, well, and there's my sister. Whole family on my birthday, that's nice. Um, I said, don't you think there's a hill maybe I could do a run? Is that what they're called? A run that I could do? And there was one called Waltz, which sounds super innocuous. I mean, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, super easy. Uh, so she's like, okay, I'll take you on the run. So we get up, on, we get on the ski lift, and we go up, and I get off the ski lift and I immediately wipe out. And later learn that I lose my cell phone and I'm scrambling to get up and I've lost my cell phone and there's this guy with his two kids who want to go to the Tasty Freeze. Uh, and <laughs> it was so, no, okay, that was a different, different story. Uh, so we, we start going down the waltz, doop, 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 doop. And uh, I wasn't doing, I wasn't going straight down. I was trying to do a little, little bit of curves and everything, but I still was gaining a speed that I was not comfortable going. And then eventually it happened to me again where I just creamed into a snow drift 
and later learned that I performed a, uh, an operation that is referred to as yard sailing. <laughs> because my, I apparently threw my poles and also lost my skis and somehow completely disappeared into the snow. So there was just a pile there for sale. Uh, and then my sister came up very concerned uh, until I peeped my head out from the snow and demonstrated that I was conscious and breathing and apparently my limbs were attached and then she fell because she was laughing so hard at my great display. Uh, this time I did not, uh, when I was in my 20s, I just had a headache that went away after a little while. This time at 40, not, didn't go so well. I ended up with, a, a, I believe, a torn ACL. Uh, so I was limping for quite some time, couldn't really sleep at night. And then it was time to leave and the incredible amount of snow, we dug ourselves out and I'm driving my mom in her car and we need to put chains on. Well, I can't bend one of my legs. So I'm putting the chains on by going into a superhero pose <laughs> with one leg straight under the car and my other leg bent, although I didn't look like a superhero because I kept falling over. And then we became a different version of Whackbat because I didn't get the chains on correctly and we couldn't go faster than 25 miles an hour or the chain would whack the car. <laughs> but that wasn't such a bad problem because my mom was extremely tense about this drive and would not allow me to go faster than 25 miles per hour. And I, you know, I'm driving and like, oh, whack, whack, look over at her. She's just like, her eyes are darting all over the place. Like, oh, there's so much snow and the road is bending and there's still snow and the roads are terrible. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see her kind of discreetly reach into her purse for something in a sandwich bag and kind of like, meow. And I drive a little bit longer, and then I look over her at her, and it is a totally new person. <laughs> She's looking out at the world, just breathing it in and enjoying it, and, and I, I'm like, what is going, and she's like, isn't it beautiful? <laughs> so quite, quite a, a chemical change of perspective. And time changes perspective too. And so I look back at those ski trips and I think, if I rewound and went back to those, would I do that again? Yes, I sure would. <laughs> and we're gonna take a 10 minute break. Oh, I did forget to mention though, I, uh, there, we will have some stuff, merch available out in the lobby during intermission. The bar is open in the back and um, I will also be available to sign Audience of One copies if anybody wants that done. And then we'll come back here to hear some more stories. Thank you so much. Swingin' with Ellie Shaw! Thank you so much. It does feel like we're swinging. Got some great stories tonight. And um, I've got two of my storytellers back. D did I lose Amanda? Amanda, are you still? Oh, here she comes. Hey, one of the things that I was reminded of uh, during the break is that it, not only is it my birthday, but it is Amanda Peacher's birthday, too. <laughs> Pretty sure not the same year, but, uh, oh well. 
Uh, the other thing I learned during intermission is that I am wearing a wide whale corduroy. <laughs> Apparently there is also a pin whale and some other whale. And it, it's spelled W-A-L-E. And I never knew this about corduroy, so uh, a lot of you are serious corduroy enthusiasts, <laughs> which is very impressive. All right, we are going to start the second act with a slammer, so go ahead and bring me the suitcase of slam names. Uh, I think just for grins, I'll, re I'll record. I only have 19 minutes of tape, so... If you're getting close to your five minutes, you'll see me out of your corner of your eye coming and grabbing the tape deck and frantically trying to cut it. Oh, my word. This is Pulp Fiction. Oh. No, I did watch it, but I can't. It was so long ago, I can't remember. Uh, where did I draw last time? Let's go up here. The film guy knows what you're talking about. All right, it looks like we are going to hear from uh, mm, the first name is either Andrea or Andra or Andrew, but the last name is Blonquist. So if you have the first, oh, here they come. I'm pretty sure it's, n nope. It's <laughs> walking away. All right, see ya, Andrea. Thanks for coming. All right, come on up. Oh, you can have that. And uh, the tape she was attached to is a, it was called Wherever It May Lead Me. And that was the song. And now it led you right up here on stage. So you have five minutes. I'm completely shocked because I've never put my name in there before. And I just did it two seconds ago. So, <laughs> so everybody's told really lighthearted, cute stories. I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you it's a little bit more of a somber story. Um, but for some reason, it popped into my head was the theme. So. Um, my dad passed away a couple years ago. Um, I think he had a good life, and I think he had a good death, really. Um, so he died surrounded by his family. We all got to be there. We all got to tell him that we loved him and how much we cared about him. He had fallen and hit in his head and gotten a subdural hematoma. Um, so he was very confused a lot. Um, but what was really sweet about it is that the moments of coherency that he had, he would often say something really sweet and loving about his family, different family members. So um, we all came away just really grateful for our dad, and we were really focused on all the positive things about him, and he was a great, he was a great person. He was a smart guy, I learned a lot from him, and I'm grateful he was my dad. Um, but rewind back to 1978, when I was two years old, um, that's when my dad left my house. Um, so I grew up without really my dad in the house. Uh, I had three siblings, four siblings that were quite a bit older than me, so they remember my dad being around, but I really don't. Um, my dad would come in and uh, he would come in and visit a little bit and he played piano, he'd play piano for me. Um, he'd watch boxing, he'd eat ice cream, he'd eat peanut butter on a spoon, and then he'd leave again. Um, 
and he had his own apartment, and I never was really there. Um, I didn't have a, a room there. I felt uncomfortable there. Um, and my mom really took care of me. So uh, at age 10, my parents finally got divorced. My mom finally got to the realization that he was having an affair with someone else for a long time. Um, and my teenage years after the divorce were very, very difficult. Um, I was really depressed a lot. I was really anxious a lot. I went through some really difficult times. Um, and there was a lot of reasons for that. But part of the reason is uh, my dad wasn't there, you know. Um, I remember sometimes there were some birthdays that I'd be excited he was going to come over. And um, he wouldn't come, or he would show up and spend a very short time with me and leave. And then when I was a teenager, I was a little troubled. and. I, no part of it was because I felt abandoned. Um, I don't think he meant that, but that's what happened. So fast forward, I went to counseling. I did work. I dated a lot of men who weren't very good for me. I went to more counseling. I met a husband who's awesome and has always been there for me and learned that I do deserve to have someone there for me. And I had two beautiful children who I promise every day that no matter what, I will always be there for them and never, ever leave them. And that's really important to me, that when my children grow up, they know that I've always been there for them. Parenting's really hard. And some of us that are better than others. But I think what's really important is that you always try. Anyway. My dad apologized eventually to me. He said, I wasn't always a very good father, and I'm sorry. And that was a huge deal to me. And I had a good relationship with my dad those last you know, decade or two. And he was proud of me, and I knew he was proud of me, and I knew he loved me. And I didn't always understand why he wasn't the dad he could have been, but I, I don't think he meant it. And I think that we do the best we can sometimes. And I was really happy, because I felt I'd come full circle. I have my family. I have my husband. I, I've healed. I've done the work. I'm a happy, joyful person now. I'm not depressed. I'm grateful for my life. I'm wealthy. I'm safe. And I'm really, truly grateful every day. So a couple years ago, when my dad died, I was on my way to um, his memorial service, and I was going to be the primary speaker there. And I had everything prepared, and I was all happy that he'd had a good death and that we were thinking of all these wonderful things that he'd done and all these wonderful things he'd taught us growing up. And I drove by a reservoir. And I remembered that was a reservoir I used to drive by when I was 17, and I just had to get out of the house because I was so depressed, I couldn't be in that house anymore. And all of a sudden, all of that hit me like, uh, like the wind was knocked out of me, and I had to pull over, and I had to just cry. And I couldn't understand why I was choosing to focus on this terrible part of my past when 
I had forgiven my dad when he was overall a, a great person, and why was I thinking of these awful things again? I had fixed this, I had been through this, it was done. And I called my wonderful husband who sat there while I cried on the phone and tried to pull it together so that I could go speak at my dad's memorial service, and I did. And I was fine. I, I was able to remember all the great things about my dad. And he was a, a good person. So I think um, what I wanted to say is that sometimes when you uh, have your brain rewind and you don't want it to, and you think those things are coming back that you're, you think you're done with them, sometimes you're not done with them, but that, those are the things that made you who you are. And um, those are the things that make you grateful for everything you have now. And you have to just be with that sometimes. The people that love you are complicated. Sometimes they hurt you, and sometimes they don't mean to. Parenting's hard, and sometimes you screw up. Um, but those are things that make you who you are, and it's important that you embrace them and learn from them and move past them. So. Andrea, I love that you were brave enough to put your, your name in for the first time. Thank you for that. And I also would love to thank our audience because the reason people can come up here and share stories and be vulnerable is because they can feel how accepting and supportive you are. So thank you for that. Yes, and I have heard that, you know, sometimes we do have to rewind in order to press play. So that's a, that was a wonderful reminder of that. Um, does anyone else have a birthday here tonight? Is it just Amanda and I? Do we get to corner the birthday tonight? For a couple days, yeah. I know, I know people are going to have birthdays in the next few days, too. Yeah, that's true. Uh, our final featured storyteller is taking a position which very much involves rewinding Boise. So please welcome to Story Story Night for the first time, Maureen Lavelle. Thank you. Um, yes, so I, my name's Maureen and I, I do work in history here in Boise, but I've worked in the history field and I've studied history for the better part of, of 10, maybe even 13 years. And so it seems kind of natural that um, you know, I, I would be able to share a story on this theme, Rewind. Um, history is, is one of those kind of quirky characteristics that people often associate with me. Stra like strangers will remember that about me, or friends will say, oh, this is my, my history friend. She loves history. Does anybody here, I'm just curious, have a friend who, um, when you talk to them, they might respond to you in song lyrics? Does that sound familiar? I'm the person who, uh, I'm like that person, but with history facts, all kinds of random ones. So my friends might say, oh, hey, there's a really cute dog. And I'll say, did you know that Abraham Lincoln had a yellow dog named Fido and that he too was assassinated? There's no reason for that. <laughs> 
but I like bombing these people with all my random knowledge. But thinking tonight about the, the concept of rewind, what actually stuck in my brain was when you hit the, the rewind button on the tape deck, sometimes you hear that garbled, squeaky, high-pitched noise as the tape winds backwards. And that made me think about how it's dangerous or maybe um, it can be a problem if you allow yourself to rewind and not listen to the whole tape, if you let messages go by without discerning what they are. And the stories I want to share tonight have to do with my understanding of history, of historical context, and trying not to forget the bigger message that can get lost. In the summer after I finished sixth grade, my dad came home from work one day and he said that he had to go to a conference in West Virginia and he decided he was gonna take me and we were gonna make an epic road trip of the, of the whole thing. We were gonna travel all over the East. And um, this is back before we had internet at my house, years before smartphones. So when it came to planning our trip, it really involved my dad coming home every day from work with a stack of printouts from websites like MapQuest or websites like touristy things to do in this state or this town. And one day he came home with a printout, a long printout from a website that was something to the effect of weird places to see when traveling through Virginia. And some of those weird places, I, I still remember there was Foamhenge, so Stonehenge made out of foam. <laughs> or, <laughs> or if you're going to Northern Virginia, you could see, uh, I remember the Drug Enforcement Agency Museum, and you could <laughs> check out what they have in their collection. Uh, I think there was something in there too about the, world, the world's oldest ham is in Virginia. But anyway, <laughs> what, of all those appealing choices, what actually stuck in what I was immediately hooked by um, was an entry that described visiting the grave of a man's arm. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know why, I do not know why to this day, why I latched on to that particular site, but I had to see this grave dedicated to a man's arm. I, I should mention too, growing up, I, I think I was fairly normal. I didn't go to cemeteries. I didn't collect, you know, bird bones or anything strange. I, I, but I was electrified by delight that I wanted to see this grave. On this printout that my dad had uh, was a pretty grainy photo of a stone marker. And on the marker, all it said was, Arm of Stonewall Jackson, May 3rd, 1863. I had never heard of this person before. Didn't know anything about this guy, but I was going to Virginia, and I was going to see his arm. <laughs> now, my dad, um, so really this this site anchored our road trip. And my dad, I think, wanted to, he was kind of excited to kind of cultivate this newfound passion I had to see this grave. Um, it was probably the first passion that he could ever like somewhat relate to. Um, Harry Potter wasn't his thing, but visiting the arm of a Civil War general was like, okay, I can work with that. So um, we embarked, we set off in July of that summer. And before we, we went to the arm, we made a few stops to help fill in my gaps of knowledge. So the first stop, I remember, <clears throat> was uh, Antietam National Battlefield. And that's where I learned 
This man, Stonewall Jackson, was a Civil War general. He was a Confederate general, and he was beloved by his men, for his soldiers, for um, pulling off daring and risky attacks in battles. Our next stop was uh, to a place called Manassas National Battlefield, and that's where I learned that this man was given the nickname Stonewall because he was very stoic and composed on the battlefield and nothing ever fazed him, and that was, that was inspirational to his men. There stands uh, Jackson like a stone wall. Our next stop, our final uh, stop, was a place called Chancellorsville Battlefield, and that's where I learned that in the midst of the battle, Stonewall Jackson pulled off a surprise attack against the US Army, and it was in the middle of that attack um, that he accidentally, he was, he was accidentally shot by his own men. Uh, his fellow Confederates fired upon him. He wrote, you shouldn't ride in front of your own lines in the dark in the woods, just as a disclaimer. But he was mistakenly shot by his own men and injured several times in his left arm. Finally, we, the culminating day arrived and we, we set out on our journey to find the arm grave. Now I understood what happened to his arm. Why, what, they had to cut it off, okay. Um, it took us a while to find this place. There's a lot of winding roads in Virginia and country highways and it was, it was difficult to locate this kind of dirt road. Um, but we, we found it, we, we, we turned and we went down this long bumpy gravel road and ended up um, by ourselves in the middle of this kind of grassy field with a large farmhouse next to us. Ominously, there was nobody around, but uh, the farmhouse was covered in vultures. That's one distinct memory I have. We got out of the car and we saw this little crooked wooded sign that said cemetery this way and we followed the little path and we ended up walking for about five or 10 minutes and ended up in the middle of a big cornfield and uh, there was a patch of grass fenced off in the middle of this cornfield, and uh, that was the cemetery. And I only know it was a cemetery because there was a very helpful sign that said there were about a dozen people buried in that cemetery. None of them had headstones. The only marker in this cemetery was for Stonewall Jackson's left arm. <laughs> I guess, I don't know what you have to do to get a gravestone in Virginia, but... Um, <clears throat> And that was it. I, there's no beacon of light that came down. There was no fanfare or something like that, but I had finally completed this journey and I had arrived at this grave. And I, I remember again, feeling kind of filled up by this electric delight, like, ooh, I am the only person in the world right now at this grave of an arm. And I, how cool is that? Who does that kind of stuff? But it, it sparked, that electricity, I guess, sparked um, a new found obsession. And my dad and I, we finished our road trip, we went home to Idaho, but I really started to run with this obsession with Stonewall Jackson. And I would read lots of books that I could get my hands on. I watched, of course, yes, I've seen the Ken Burns Civil War documentary a couple times, maybe a few more than I'd like to admit. And um, it, was, it was kind of a party trick, honestly. I could pull out my weird knowledge and bombard my friends and family with random facts about this person and more random facts that I learned about the battles in the Civil War. Growing up in Idaho, I'm curious, I, I imagine a lot of us grew up in Idaho. Um, you may not be surprised that there were not a lot of people or 
resources out there that complicated my image of the Civil War and my image of Stonewall Jackson. I, again, I couldn't really tell you why I latched on this person, at least I couldn't tell you at the time, but looking back, I start to think that the 30,000 foot view of this obsession was that Stonewall Jackson and the other people I learned about, they were, they were like my superheroes. The Civil War was the equivalent to the Marvel Universe for me. And uh, the battles and the thrilling underdog story and the, the Civil War generals, they were my action figures. And um, I would do things like, um, you know, I'll, I, I went off to college and I remember baking a cake on a certain person's birthday and my college roommates came home and they said, well, who are we celebrating? Well, <laughs> have you ever heard of? Um, <laughs> and I would, I would do weird stuff like that and, and you know, I just continued to fill up with this kind of joy of, of like having this novel obsession. But in, um, in 2015, uh, a year after I finished college, I, um, I got my first job in the history field. And uh, I became a park ranger with the National Park Service. And yes, it included the whole uniform and the Smokey the Bear hat and a cool little badge. And I was really excited because my, my job, my posting, was in Virginia. And it was going to be at these battlefields where Stonewall Jackson had fought. And it also happened to be uh, I, got to, I got to work at the building where Stonewall Jackson died. And I was excited because I was finally going to have a willing audience to listen to the weird things that I had to tell them about the Civil War and about Stonewall Jackson. So I was stoked. This, this, uh, this job started in May of 2015. But things really started to change. The dynamic at work started to change. It really started to open my eyes um, in June of 2015. Because that's when um, a shooter walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and opened fire on churchgoers there and killed nine people. This church um, was the oldest historically black church in the South. And a few days after that terrible event, uh, the National Park Service announced that it would no longer fly Confederate flags um, at Civil War battlefields, and it would no longer sell Confederate me memorabilia um, and flags at gift shops. And in the days following that decision, visitors um, coming to the park, and like, like I said, the dynamic really changed, and it, it, opened, it, it changed in that visitors started exhibiting different behavior, but it also opened my eyes to the fact that there was behavior in place already that I was a little ignorant of. And people were very free with their, their thoughts and opinions about iconography and Confederate general statues and this decision to take down things like the Confederate flag. And, um, it pepper, uh, my memory is peppered with, with all these moments that took place over the summer where um, my job was to work at a museum and talk to people about their questions and talk to them about what they saw on display or to go out on the battlefields and, and walk around and give tours and try to recreate the moments uh, that, that unfolded on that same landscape where we were standing. But during those you know, during those times after the shooting and after that decision, people would um, interrupt my tours to voice very strong, loud opinions. They would 
walk up to me unsolicited and, and share something that was on their mind. I remember once uh, a man walked up to me and he said, I love visiting plantation houses all over the South. They're beautiful. No wonder they had slaves. How else could they keep up this kind of building? I remember once uh, during a, a tour, um, you know, simply saying the word slavery, I, my visitors started to shout at me saying that the Civil War was fought over the issue of states' rights and not slavery. Um, and it just became tense. And driving to work every day, I wasn't filled with that electric delight anymore. It was, it was tension, it was dread, it was anxiety, because I didn't know who was going to say something to me, what they were going to say, and how I was going to react to that. Imagine going to your job and, and some out of the blue comment comes. You don't know when or where or what, what will happen. And that tension continued to build, not just during that summer, but I went back in 2016 in the midst of Black Lives Matter protests and police shootings and the presidential election. And people were more and more free about sharing their thoughts on the Civil War, slavery, and Confederate iconography. It used to became, it, it became pretty regular to see people, visitors, walking around with giant Confederate flags for no other reason than just to walk around and wave them around and tell people that they were there to defend history. It became common to see protests, Confederate flag uh, rallies from my office space. I, I remember eating lunch in the break room and seeing the heads and tops of, of people as they're waving Confederate flags outside the building and waving at cars that were driving by, honking what might have been their approval, I'm not sure. But it, it, was, it was a constant buildup of tension and dread. And that really culminated um, in, on August 12th, 2017, I went into work and I was, stationed at the building where Stonewall Jackson died, and I was by myself. And that building happens to be located about an hour away from a town called Charlottesville, where that very same day, a large white supremacist rally was taking place uh, at the base of a statue of Robert E. Lee, and an even larger counter-protest was taking place uh, uh, in opposition to that white supremacist rally. And I was, I was going to work I was scared. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I wasn't sure if I was going to be visited by people who um, were purported to uh, be at Charlottesville that day as well. I saw a lot of Confederate flags that day mounted on the backs of pickup trucks, and a lot of people did come into the building. But fortunately for me, um, no outbreaks of violence, no um, you know, overtly harsh or terrible words were spoken, except the things that I could see and hear coming from my smartphone as news coverage uh, continued to roll in from Charlottesville. I, my time as a park ranger, um, it, it, it really shaped my perceptions of the past and what I think my responsibility is as a public historian. I, I came to recognize uh, very deeply that there weren't a lot of things in my world specifically that complicated these narratives of my superheroes. But I became very aware that for a lot of people in this country, those realities, those terrible, harsh realities, uh, were very apparent to them, either at a young age or because of some violence or because of, of hateful language spoken to them um, unsolicited. 
and I am, I'm humbled by and, and embarrassed by the privilege that protected me from those narratives from, you know, for such a long time. Um, but it's something I, I've tried to learn from and I'd like to continue, I, I will continue to learn from. It reminds me, much like when you hit rewind on the tape deck, that it's important not to rush past and just find the tidbit story that you want to focus on. You miss something, you, you don't hear specific voices when you hit that rewind button and let things go by too quickly. That's the lesson I, I've taken away from this experience and I thank you very much for your time. All right, go ahead and bring me the slammer suitcase. And Maureen, thank you for that story. Uh, but be honest, that birthday cake for a certain someone, was it in the shape of an arm? <laughs> she tried her best. All right. Is it cake? All right, let's have Elizabeth T. Elizabeth T. bringing her tea with her. <laughs> all right, guys, how y'all doing, Boise? Woo, all right, so I haven't signed a waiver yet, but I'm just gonna say, fuck yeah, all right? So uh, I wanted to share some with y'all. You, you guys are popping my comedy cherry, so I wanted to share that with you, that uh, you guys are sharing that with me in this moment. Because um, the rewind that I don't want to take is when I pop my cherry, listening to White Snake is this love. That's a rewind I definitely don't want to take in the past, so, so we won't go there. Um, so I wanted to share that I, I recently became a dog mom. Are any of you all dog lovers out there? All right, sweet. So I uh, recently became a dog mom, and uh, she's my baby. She's my rescue baby, and uh, I don't know whether to call her my first fur baby, because when you're a stepchild, you uh, you tend to not be included in things kind of like the being a part of the family dog, like a family picture. True story, but I'll save that for my therapist if I could find one, but that's okay. I'll take, I'll take numbers if you want. So uh, yeah, so I rescued uh, this dog, Bella. She's a husky healer myth, myth, bleh. oh, sorry. I'll, uh, I'll get some carpet cleaner for that, sorry about that. I'm Italian, if you can't tell, I talk with my hands, so not apologizing. Um, so Bella is a healer husky mix. She likes to go on adventures, so, uh, oh boy. So um, it's like maybe a week after I rescued her, and I'm at this ale house, and uh, I'm very excited, you know, I'm a first time dog mom in like, ever, honestly. Uh, so I take her out to lunch, more like take, take myself out to lunch because I'm very proud of rescuing this, this dog. And uh, so I had to go to the bathroom really bad after I was done having lunch with her or, or myself in a book. But, you know, I had her there. She was enjoying herself. So uh, I, go, I go to the restroom. Well, prior to that, uh, I, tell their, I tell my waitress, like, hey, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the restroom, but I'll be right back. I may be gone for like three minutes. I'm like rushing in the bathroom. I come out and there's a waitress that I don't even recognize her. She comes up to me and she's like, I don't want to tell you this, but your dog got loose. 
So there's the end of this sentence that I kind there, there, there's kind of a clause to this whole phrase that I kind of need to know, like, where is she? Where does she go? So I did loop her to the table with her leash, but the thing was is uh, she's gone. So my waitress that served me, she recognized me. She's like, oh, no, Bella's fine. She's just up on the terrace, like, saying hi to everybody. I'm like, oh, okay, so she chewed through her leash. So let me tell you about the story about this leash. This leash that I got for my dog, she's a healer husky miss, maybe like 50 pounds, 45 pounds-ish. Has anybody had a husky healer mix? Healers, anybody? No? Okay, well, okay, so she's like a 45, 50 pound uh, dog. She's walking around this terrace with her leash chewed off, attached to her, saying hi to everybody. So I'm a first-time dog mom in forever, and I'm just like, oh, my God. I have social anxiety to the yin-yang. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm, like, walking up to the maybe, like, this much left of her leash with the other leash, and I'm just like, hi, like, you know, hello, and I'm, like, trying to attach what was left of it. The funny part is about this leash is it wasn't, like, a leash that you would attach to, like, a husky. It was probably something, maybe a corgi, maybe not, like, a, a Yorkie, but... <laughs> Something you would probably put against like a like a corgi, you know, like it's like it's thin enough, but it's not too thick. It was thin enough for her to chew through. Let me put it that way. So so that was my first dog mom moment. And let me tell you, I'm not even a human mom yet. And I, I could barely keep up with with Bella, let alone my two two feline fur babies and my husband, who's like a man child. But we'll we'll say that for another set. So. Um, so this adventure with Bella started with the leash, okay? So I'm like, okay, all right. Maybe not like, you know, this kind of a thin leash, but I'll get her like a thick leash. So I got her a thick leash. But then I thought, oh, what if I put her in a, I'll put her in a, a harness. That's going to keep her in there. Does anybody remember what part she is? Uh, not healer, but husky. So my husband and I were cleaning out our garage, and I thought it would be a good idea to loop her against the, the workout bench with this harness on her. What do huskies do? They pull, but not just pull. She pulled out of it. So we're cleaning, the, we're cleaning this garage, and all of a sudden, there's a, there's a harness with a leash attached to it and no Bella. So I'm like... Okay, so then I look down the street and there's Bella two, two houses down, just booking it, like, like she's just go, going after us. So I'm like, oh great. So then I unlooped it and I'm like running after her down the street, and mind you, like I I have no idea where the hell she's going. This sorry, I know I know we're not allowed to swear here, but I don't know where the heck she's going. So she's running down the street and I'm like booking it after her. She goes through. Uh, they're neighbors, but maybe I've waved to them a couple of times. I don't know their names. She runs through their open garage into their side door. You know, the door that you leave to the backyard. She runs through their open garage, through their side door to their backyard. So the first instinct that I had is I just need to just block her in there before I have to chase after her again. I run through these neighbors who I've never met before. I go through their garage, shut the side door, and hold on, it's, it gets better. Um, and the first thing I thought was, okay, I got her in the backyard. I'm going to go to the front door and uh, knock on the door. And I tell them, hi, my dog is kind of in your backyard. Can I come get her? They're like, oh, yeah, come on in. It looks like she's eating Mitten's cat food. I'm like, oh, great. That's, that's awesome. 
and they just invite me to their house. I get her on the leash. And uh, anyways, all I want to say is uh, if you ever had a dog that means that's special to you, like my dog Bella has, she's reminded me to be in the present and to know that there are good people out there and that being put in the moment out of your comfort zone is the best thing in the world. So that's my dog, Bella. Peace, Boise. All right, bring me another tape. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, that did confirm for me that I am a cat parent. <laughs> no leashes involved. You're a cat parent, too? All right. Uh, it's not always easy, though. I have to say, I had, we got two cats. They were rescues who grew up together. But we now have an upstairs cat and a downstairs cat because they no longer get along. And I'll tell you what, he might have, it's a boy and a girl, and he might deserve it, but uh, the girl stays upstairs, the boy stays downstairs, and during the night, the girl gets the whole house. And one morning, we got up, and she had gone downstairs and gathered all of the boy boys' toys and moved them on the other side of the gate where he could see them, but couldn't reach them. So that's smart. Oh, let's have Amanda. Amanda, it's your birthday. You pick, you pick one. Yeah. All right, what did you get? It's uh, Watch the Lamb. That sounds Christmassy. Um, oh, good. We're, next up is Jeff, Jeffrey or Joffrey? One of the Joffrey sounds fancy, but it might be Jeffrey. Is it Jeffrey or Joffrey? Jeffrey. Jeffrey, okay, Jeffrey. Come on up. All right, welcome. Five minutes on the theme, rewind. Oh, I never stopped the tape. Well, we can just keep going. There we go. All right. Hey, Boise, we love you. This is the second time that I've uh, been up here on the stage. Many, many years ago, I told another five-minute story about my friend Big Dave. And uh, it always comes back to the crazy days of being a young Marine in Hawaii. And my friend the other day gave me a call and he sent this text and he had a picture of uh, Doc Mack. He took care of us <clears throat> when we did all these insane things, of course. But he was saying, you know, like, oh, we had some good times and, you know, those were really fun. And wouldn't you like to do that again? <clears throat> I'm like, well, let's think about that. I remember being a Lance Corporal and uh, going to Okinawa. In Hawaii, we had to do that every 12 months, where most deployments are every 18 months. So, you know, poor married people would like see their uh, loved ones about three months a year because we'd be training and then you deployed and working all the time. And, um, so when you go to Okinawa, you have to live in these like Quonset huts and it's a big open space and there's a restroom in the middle with your showers and stuff, but everybody, it's like living with 200 men all the time and that's probably why I got out of the Marines. I just decided it needed to be a little more economical between the boys and the girls, but I'm sure all the ladies know that 
it could be a, quite a nightmare living with 200 jarheads that are about 17 to 20, you know. So <clears throat> you have to take turns and you have a, a, what's called a fire watch. And so somebody watches the squad bay 24 hours a day. Usually there's a couple of guys and you do pull a rotation. This becomes a problem mostly on the weekends. And if you don't, if you don't have to uh, uh, do any jobs or missions <clears throat> and you're not going anywhere else, you know, you might get um, some, some weekends off. And <clears throat> that is just chaos. And, and he's, my friend's telling me, oh yeah, this was really fun. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I'm, I'm thinking back of one particular night, I'm walking up and down, trying to keep all the peace, you know, and it's mostly quiet because everybody's out in town and they're young and it's a foreign country that doesn't have a lot of policing going on. And so we, we usually kind of police ourselves is what you have to do. <laughs> so as these kids start coming in drunk, <clears throat> they're very excited about their training and, and their new job that they really don't understand <laughs> what it will be. <laughs> and and, and uh, I remember particularly one private comes in and he throws open the door and he says, I'm going to low crawl down the hallway. And so he jumps down on the floor and he starts practicing his perfect low crawl. And he pukes right out in front of himself. <laughs> and he just keeps running right through it. <laughs> and I'm like thinking, yeah, I, I, I remember that. I wonder if my friend remembers those moments, you know. <laughs> One of the craziest things that happened was with my friend Doc Mack, I mentioned. And uh, he had this uh, spider tattooed on the back of his, his, his back. And um, we went out one night uh, and we stayed out really late. And we were drinking what's called Mojo, which is a, quite a concoction. That's all, all, another story. This one is just about living through it. <clears throat> so uh, we, get, we get out, we, we just leave town. It's about, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning. We have a whole battalion-wide run at 5 o'clock in the morning. So my friend stumbling, and he tells me, I'm going to run home. <laughs> and I was like, well, we got about two miles to walk. It's no big deal, but running, and we've been drinking heavy and we are drunk. So he, he takes off running and I'm like, oh my God, I, I couldn't catch him. I'm like, fine. I started walking. So, you know, of course, somebody pulls over and picks me up and hey, what unit are you at? And, you know, I'm an alpha company over here, whatever. And I, I, he, he, my, he, I get dropped off. And so as I'm approaching the barracks, I can hear this, this cadence, you know, the, 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 the one, two, three, you know. And I'm thinking, my God, what, what is that? It's like three o'clock in the morning. And my friend that had ran all the way home, he gets, he gets in there and of course he's sick as hell. And Doc Mack, 
as I round the corner is counting cadence over him as he's wrapped around the toilet. And Doc Mack has gone, one, two, three, boom! And then he's immediately just, Whoa! And, and this went on for about 20 minutes, you know? And it's really a great story to tell, but living through that is like, I don't remember that being that fun. <laughs> so sometimes you remember the past, and it was fun, but it's always that double-edged sword. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive funding from the Boise City Department of Arts and History. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Chandra Group. This show was sponsored by Flavors. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Our guest musician was Swingin' with Ellie Shaw. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message or click the Stories tab on our website. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Come to a live show and pick up a copy of my new book, Audience of One, Stories of Stage, Screen, and Solitude. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.